Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 19, Iken Robot vs. Dan. Hi all, I'm here with Dan Listens To. That's Dan Listens To, just, just like it sounds. And uh, we don't have much of an agenda today. But I was talking with Dan just before we started recording and asked him what he wanted to show. And he mentioned something called Evolving Ground, which has something to do with meditation. And I don't know anything about meditation at all. I have some priors and I'm going to give Dan the chance to just explain to me why everything that I know or think is wrong and bad. Um, Dan, also welcome. How are you doing? Hey, buddy. I'm doing good. It's nice to talk to you today. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a really good day in Seattle. Actually, I, I helped some friends move and um, had some goodbyes, and and it's actually been is interesting. I think the closest I get to meditating is driving in the car, listening to music turned way up, and just kind of looking at the sky and the cityscape, and and just falling into my thoughts. And I don't know that that seems like it sort of comports with my idea of what meditation is, but I don't actually know how meditation is defined or or how it's systematized. And I think maybe, I think that's one thing that I, that I sense about meditation that, that sort of turns me off from it or that I intrinsically might dislike this idea that it's systemizing something that maybe I tend to fall into just completely naturally or, or without thought, but I also might be completely misunderstanding meditation. So I don't know what what have I said that's objectionable so far. Um, the first thing you said is that you're falling into your thoughts, which is sort of the opposite direction of the way meditation is often described um, in terms of its resulting function. Where I mean, th- this is a complicated topic, and I'll probably be misstating things. So I I welcome uh, future listeners here to tear me apart on Twitter, really, um, but. A kind of baseline notion of the most prominent or fundamental style of meditation is to produce um, a kind of clear mind, where instead of falling into your thoughts, where you're becoming increasingly engrossed with your internal production of, of thoughts and feelings, you would enter into a state where you're increasingly leaving them behind, letting them fall away until you're engaged more with the sort of present moment. And there might be no thoughts left if we define thoughts as things like fragments of narrative speech told to yourself internally. Um, And you would be kind of almost in a blank state where you have only your immediate environmental sensations coming in and nothing else. Would So I think there was something about this that came up on Twitter the other day, and it may have been... David Chapman, possibly criticizing one school of meditation. Oh yeah, is, are, are there are there multiple 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 fields here? And and are is what you're describing just one specific school of thought or school of not thought about meditation? School of no thought. Um, yes, um, <laughs> I mean, it, I'm glad that you honed in on that because it's certainly going to make for this conversation a little bit more interesting, fiery, and controversial. Um, yeah, do it. So, oh gosh, how, how should I talk about um, 
various sectarian rivalries in Buddhism and how that applies to different forms of meditation. Hmm. <laughs> um, all right. I mean, well, here's the thing. I don't know anything about it and this is a platform. So I say go off. All right. Sure. I'm going to go off. <laughs> to the extent you like. So you asked a question, which was, um, is that style of meditation that I just described unique to one particular school or is that more widespread? Um, and the answer is uh, yes to both. Um, mm. Basically, every single meditation tradition, both Buddhist and otherwise, will have some foundational practice which is designed to cultivate a kind of clarity of mind. Um, the language that they use to discuss that will vary greatly depending on where it came from. Um, and then there are many forms of meditation practice that go beyond just that. They, they'll, they have a larger agenda than just get to this sort of resting state, clarity or emptiness. Um, the school that David Chapman is trained in is one of those. Um, it has a much larger agenda than just emptiness. Um, but let's rewind a little bit and get to the juicy bits of this sectarian conflict that people get real mad online about. Um, so here's the basic, <laughs> here's the basic frame of the conflict. Um, we have some traditions that are at their core ascetic and renunciative and other traditions at their core that are not, um, they have a lot of overlap in methodology and perhaps other things like uh, philosophical ideas, but they differ a lot in their method and expectation of the results of that method. So a renunciatory tradition would be, for example, uh, Theravada. Theravada is a kind of modern interpretation from uh, originating in Southeast Asia that claims to be sort of originalist in its orientation. Um, they focus very heavily on, say, the first 300 years of Buddhist scriptures, and they tend to be like hard asses and fundamentalists in a certain way. Um, of course, I'm overgeneralizing. Yeah. I'm now inviting, you know, more people to be angry online at me, but there it is. Um, there are exceptions, but I would say, you know, the, the archetypal Theravadin is almost fundamentalist in their orientation, um, which is not to imply that they're like nasty culture war fundamentalists like you find in America, though some of them are, um, but just that they're, they have this view of the tradition which um, limits the tradition to a canon consisting of the earliest materials and methods. And the philosophical orientation that they take is deeply ascetic and can be summarized sort of thusly. Um, according to the Buddha, there is this basic truth about consciousness, which is if you are conscious at all, it is because something caused you to be conscious. If something caused you to be conscious, you have some sort of entanglement or attachment with things in the world. Um, there's a metaphysics to this too, which they you know claim is based on the cycle of reincarnation where your attachments from previous lifetimes will cause consciousness in future lifetimes. Um, so from their point of view, the entire point of this is to release attachments from your present and previous lifetimes 
um, so that you won't have to be conscious anymore because consciousness is suffering on a fundamental level. So this is why David Chapman says things and like uh, they're practicing meditation in a way that is intended to turn them into pea zombies because they want to be like not conscious. The word right. for that is arhat. Arhat is someone who has through meditation practice attained something like cessation of um, thought and feeling and is essentially in like pea zombie mode where they're just, you know, cool, you don't feel anything and then you get to die without having any attachments or feelings left so you don't come back. And that's what they say is the goal. So, and, and you're saying that these people get mad at people who have other interpretations of Buddhism? Uh, yes. And it's interesting in the ways that they do. That feels, <laughs> that feels, that feels a bit contradictory to the idea of detachment. Doesn't it? It's really weird, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that they can justify this anger is because of the metaphysics where they say like, well, it's okay if I have attachments now because um, I'm not done with my enlightenment process yet. I'm probably going to reincarnate another several dozen times or maybe several hundred times or several thousand times, depending on their level of confidence or swagger, whatever they think. Um, so the Theravada schools is one of the <laughs> God, places grab me. Where, where you find um, a, a practice path mapping that includes such gems as um, once returner, twice returner, six times returner. They're, they're literally counting how many more reincarnations they think they have. Um, God grant me detachment, but not yet. Not yet. Right. They say in the next lifetime, I'll be incrementally less detached. <laughs> but in this one, I care a lot <laughs> about what somebody said on twitter.com. <laughs> Um, but again, I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of, uh, representing a bit of a straw man here. The, the, the people who got real mad on twitter.com are not like Theravadan monks in Thailand. They're like American dudes who, um, learned a little bit of Buddhism and the, the way that they learned it was from a source that was connected to Theravada. So maybe they went on uh, yeah. a 10-day silent Vipassana retreat and the teachers there came from that background and sort of began to indoctrinate them on the retreat. Um, it's also a kind of artifact of what David Chapman calls American consensus Buddhism, or I should say Western consensus Buddhism since these people mm -hmm. are in Europe too. Um, Western consensus Buddhism is like some basically incoherent combination of um, psychotherapy, new age hippie shit, um, touchy feely, good vibes and Theravada Buddhism. Um, it has other influences too. I'm caricaturing it to be clear, but you know, that caricature is, um, at, at least a representational cutout, even if it's lacking depth. Mm -hmm. Um, so here's, here's where things get more heated. Um, the, this, the sect or school that David Chapman's training came from is called Vajrayana. Vajrayana is um, an international presence, but is particularly associated with Tibet and other Himalayan countries, though there are Vajrayana schools in mm. lots of other places, especially in places like Japan. Um, but certainly David's background is mostly in Tibetan stuff. Um, I think he did a lot of training in the Shambhala organization under Chogyam Trungpa. Um, 
I don't know if I don't know if Trungpa was actually David's teacher. I think that by the time he got there, uh, Trungpa had probably died, and he was learning from Trungpa's students. Um, if you're not familiar with him, Chogyam Trungpa is this sort of like legendary, crazy wisdom, charismatic figure. Um, used to hang out with Alan Watts a lot. They were drinking buddies, <laughs> and uh, Trungpa died of alcohol. Nice. <laughs> There's there's a particular irony here because hmm. um, you know alcohol is supposed to be forbidden to devout Buddhists. Anyway, um, so he trained alcohol specifically. Alcohol specifically, yeah, it's the fifth the fifth lay precept, which anyone who takes an ordination in a in a traditional Buddhist order will have made a vow to not drink alcohol. I don't huh. think David. Ever, Interesting. Ever okay, but other drugs are. Fine. Chagyam Trungpa certainly did, and uh, he had his reasons for drinking, but technically he was breaking his vows and was a drunk and an alcoholic and kind of abusive in certain respects. <laughs> Complicated figure, really interesting guy. Yeah. Uh, you Many such cases, drug. yeah. Um, this is a really, really contentious gray area. Um, if, if you're a textual literalist, then the fifth precept actually names three specific things that are supposed to be forbidden. Most translators believe that those three things were the name of three alcoholic beverages. So it'd be like wine, beer, and spirits equivalently, right? Um, okay. It does not mention other, other intoxicants, um, no mention of cannabis, no mention of psilocybin, all, you know, any number of things you could think of that might be interesting and relevant. Um, the vast majority of Buddhist organizations are, are anti-drug in general. Um, but there is some wiggle room around the edges and they'll certainly be much stricter about alcohol than they will with other things. But the way the, the precept is actually worded is mm. interesting too, because it's not even clear that it's, it's ordering or, or requiring total abstinence as much as it's saying, um, do not become heedless, reckless, or mindless through consumption of alcohol. So, you know, maybe one glass of wine is fine. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, sorry, that was definitely a tangent from where you were going. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get lots of tangents and those are fun. So, um, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so, uh, David Chapman trained in Shambhala and then he later trained in something called the arrow terror, which is a, uh, different Tibetan, uh, school, uh, kind of interesting in that the lineage lamas for the arrow terror are, uh, are not Tibetans. They're, uh, Westerners, uh, I'll, Welsh guy and his wife. Um, but it is a traditionally styled sect. Um, they, they practice in a traditional Tibetan way, even though they are not Tibetans. Um, and David's own perspective is, you know, very, very Vajrayana influenced, um, but also not strictly Buddhist, right? Like he, he is a student of Western philosophy. He did a lot of AI research and he's got a lot of independent thoughts of his own. So I wouldn't characterize anything he says as being sort of doctrinaire from any particular perspective. They're really his own thoughts. Um, yeah. But to sort of set up the conflict here, um, Vajrayana came later. Um, if we're looking at timelines, you know, I said Theravada probably limits itself to the first 300-ish years of Buddhism as its canon materials. Whereas Vajrayana starts in about the 8th century AD. Um, there's a sort of mythical founder figure named Padmasambhava. That means lotus born. Um, the 
most concise mm-hmm. way I can summarize the myth of this founder to you is to say, um, imagine Gandalf in the Himalayas. <laughs> so there you go. So there's like this sort of um, wandering pilgrim wizard figure who brings a very innovative take on Buddhism to the Himalayas in, a, in about the eighth century. Um, this is developed into stuff that is later put under the umbrella of Vajrayana. Vajrayana is um, complex, diverse, and hard to summarize. But one of the major strains within it is um, it has an orientation, especially through these practices that are labeled as tantric, that are much more kind of life affirming and are not oriented towards this goal of uh, eliminating your attachments to things in the world and directing you towards a you know state of cessation and basically self-annihilation um, the goal here is more like yeah there was mastery which is completely different yeah I was um I, I was intrigued about this I mean I know very little I have words and I'm forming associations with them. Um, Penelope, what if you didn't stand on the keyboard? Um, but <laughs> that's, uh, viewers will not see this, but Penelope is standing directly in front of the camera. So he, <laughs> Colin, Colin of Zion specifically mentioned being a student of Tantra. And when he was talking with power bottom dad about it, he, he described it as, as, as Buddhism for a man of the world for, for the man who drinks whiskey. Yeah. He said, as he himself, I think, was getting pretty drunk. And I was I was charmed by that. Well, so this is a great example, especially considering Colin, who's a friend of mine, and Power Bottom Dad, who is just an incorrigible degenerate, which I encourage and cherish. He's so good. Yeah. Um, so one of the words that we use in Evolving Ground to label ourselves is degenerate. Um, there are a lot of reasons for this. The most important of them is to recognize that we are a break from tradition and a traditionalist would consider us degenerates, um, which we embrace. But another reason for it is it's kind of an important idea in the practice of Tantra. Um, like I mentioned that Chogyam Trungpa, who was you know one of the Tantra masters of the 20th century, was also an alcoholic and a drunk and that Buddhists aren't supposed to drink. So what's, what's up with that? Um, well, in general, Buddhists aren't supposed to drink, except... In tantric Buddhism, these sort of antinomian practices are uh, encouraged if if they're done with the correct context and intention. Um, so, were the were the anti- have a tantric antinomians practice. were the ones who yeah uh, they they were the ones were they the ones who believed that it was important to sin so that you could be forgiven to maximize the the the, the quantity of Christ's forgiveness or something like that. Uh, that sounds right to me. Or am I imagining a different? Uh, it certainly matches my idea of the definition of the word. I'm not sure what its origins are. So maybe I'm learning something about the etymology of this term. But yeah, antinomian means like deliberately transparent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was, I, I can't remember where that sect came into play, but it's it's definitely a specific Christian heresy. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, heresy is a good thing. <laughs> I like it. A thousand Catholics are mad. Okay. We're going to get lots of people so, oh, mad at actually, me. Actually, yeah. What, 
That's fine. Everyone can yell at me or at Dan, but also feel free to yell at me since I feel like I'm I'm encouraging this. So that that's a really interesting take. And I wonder if you could expand on that, actually. Heresy is good. So tell me about that. Sure. Um, so there's this word in Arabic that I really like. It's pronounced bidda. Uh, it, it means equally and is used interchangeably for heresy and innovation. Hmm. Um, what heresy means in the context of religion is doing something that hasn't been done before, but claiming that you're still in the religion as opposed to a schism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is the difference between, say, a Protestant who is not a Catholic heretic, they're just schismed, they're just doing a different kind of Christianity, versus a Catholic heretic who has, you know, say, who is saying, I am still a Catholic, but I think that the church doctrine is wrong and I want to change things. Yeah. Uh, so when I say I think heresy is okay. good, what I mean is there's a tendency amongst institutions of all kinds, but especially religious institutions, which are much more prone to this affliction of traditionalism and conservatism than most. And, you know, the reasons for that might be interesting. I'm not sure I have a, a clear grasp on it, but it's readily observable. Um, heresy is a way of making the institution address the current state of reality, which it might have become out of touch with. Um, humans could you, could you imagine results in yeah. violence too, because there's like backlash and political competition and all kinds of monkey mind fuckery that arises from this. But just purely from the perspective of the practice of religion, um, like I'm, I'm going to, you know, go out on a limb here and say, any claim that there is a single revealed truth that is eternally correct is basically wrong. Um, I understand why it's used as a rhetorical device and why it reinforces the institutional power of religions and, and their churches, but it's absurd. It's crazy. Religions are human institutions, even if they have some, you know, connection to the divine. Um, and imagining that you've got it right and nothing ever needs to be changed or updated or recontextualized or improved is nuts. So uh, I, here I am standing for heretics because I think that they're doing this extremely important and dangerous work and often getting in a lot of trouble for it. But ultimately, it results in good things. Would you? That's interesting. Could you? Could you imagine it being true that I could see the argument being pretty defensible that heresy as an institution produces some kind of good on net. But what it seems like a very aggressive statement to say that heresy is always good. Well, I don't think it's always good. Like I, I can imagine lots of heresies always... terrible. Okay. Right. Um, I, I'm not staking out an absolutist position here and, and I never will. I'm, I'm okay. I'm addicted to nuance. Um, okay. Well, the yeah, church of heresy I, is going to have some words with you, but I, I think that one of the reasons why I have this, this opinion about heresy is that the main failure mode I've seen in religion is that it, it's stale. It doesn't work for people. It's, it, feel, it feels empty and pointless. And people often show up to you know, their family's ancestral traditional church or temple and go through the motions 
because it pleases their family and they have no connection to it. They have, they have no, you know, connection with the vertical to use um, a phrase from Leonard Cohen. Um, this is something I've certainly yeah. seen in the Jewish community that I grew up in. Uh, my parents were never especially religiously engaged people, though my father did in his mid twenties make a, a serious attempt at training to become a rabbi, which really only confirmed him in his atheism. Um, and it's a serious problem that, you know, amongst Jews, for example, you either get ultra Orthodox like the Hasids who, um, they've got to be doing something wrong in a completely different way than what I'm about to talk about. Um, but certainly they have, they haven't lost the spark of the mystical, um, in the way that the rest of Jewry really has, um, you know, Leonard Cohen accuses Jews of having having become citizens, <laughs> as he puts it. Um, yeah, the the focus on civic life, on secular society, on an ethics that is sort of pro social and you know makes for stable communities, but um, really has absolutely nothing to do with God. Um, there, there's there's no risk in modern Judaism of getting burnt on the light of the divine. And maybe that's a problem. Yeah. That's yeah. No, I, I think I would agree with that. I've, I was having some thoughts in the car when I was anti-meditating and I was thinking specifically about what it means to be a mystic or what it means to be religious or, you know, if you were to put it, if you were to put it in, what might be closer to Christian terminology, you know, being filled with the Holy spirit say, and I think it's a mental frame and it does seem to me that it's very lacking in all, well, just, just mostly institutional religions. I, um, I maybe, maybe specifically in a lot of, well, say, say Protestant mainline churches in the United States, there's, I don't know that it has to do with specific sets of beliefs, but, and I, I don't think it lines up perfectly with fanaticism for sure, but actually, actually taking a line out of maybe BAP out of BAP book. Oh no. He, he talked. Yeah, I know. Right. You'll I'm have to summarize. I haven't read it. Um, you know, you, you don't have to read it and I don't have to summarize, but he he was talking about how he imagined say, um, say the Dorians invading Greece in 500 BC or whenever, I guess it was earlier than that, 800 BC, or maybe they're the sea peoples, but, but just keeping their eyes open and seeing God constantly and having that kind of a mind frame. And, and maybe you need to have something like that to really have an active religion. And it's hard to maintain that without a certain, I, I don't know, a certain mind frame. There, there was another thing. There was that essay about the guy who from a guy who believed that that he was experiencing a theophany of of being pan and he was talking about how often institutionalized religions sort of are the enemy of that kind of active religious experience whatever form it happens to take no i didn't save the bookmark i i have read that essay um yeah i think that there's something that I would call the primary experience of religion. Um, this is a term that I'm cribbing from William James, who wrote about it in the, the varieties of religious experience. Um, he calls a 
mystical experience resulting in a divine contact to be the primary experience of religion. Um, mm -hmm. Efficiency with which things like psilocybin can induce a primary mystical experience is one of the reasons why one of their nicknames is entheogens, um, which means something like mm. causing the experience of the divine to arise within. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence historically that uh, religions used to have sort of active sacraments. There's, you know, famous to a cliche kind of examples like the Kikion potion, which was probably some sort of lysergic acid cocktail used in the ancient Greek cult of Demeter um, in the mysteries of Eleusis. Mm. Right. Um, and you yeah. can sort of see remnants of this in Catholic church rituals where they hand out little crackers as the divine host. Well, that's an inert sacrament, but you can easily imagine that ritual taking place with an active sacrament where instead of it being a cracker or a piece of bread, it would have been, um, let's just call it the ancient equivalent of a tab of acid. Yep. That's exactly what I was imagining. Yeah. Was, was that the case? I mean, I, it's unclear. Like, were there, were there early Christian churches where, okay. Yeah. Um, as, as far as I know, the archeo archeological evidence, um, which is to say, you know, uh, the shittiest, shallowest dilettantish way that any, anyone could know this stuff. So I'm sure that someone who actually has done the reading will come in here and absolutely shred me on this. But as far as I know, um, there's not really great concrete evidence that they were using psychoactive sacraments in the way that we might be imagining them by way of comparison to say like the vegetalismo churches that use ayahuasca in these ceremonial set settings. That's a contemporary movement. Um, but we see the forms of it yeah. in rituals. It sure looks like that's what they were doing. And the language used to frame yeah. it matches up too. say, so, you know, communion with the divine, huh? Hmm. Where have I had that experience? It wasn't yeah. a mm -hmm. cracker. Um, <laughs> And there's, you know, maybe somewhat better evidence that some of the early Christian splinter movements, like some of the Gnostics and, and whatnot, might have been much more into that than what became the, the mainstream of the church. But I don't know. You know, I'm talking shit here. I'm not a, I'm not a scholar in this area. Um, it's really common to find yeah. artifacts yeah. in religions that portray this kind of stuff, too. Like, if you go to any museum that has a good collection of say ancient Indian artifacts, you'll find all these, all this Buddhist artwork where they're portraying their spirits, you know, bodhisattvas or Dharma protectors or whatever. This is like statues and friezes and tapestries that show these entities. And a great many of them are holding what appears to be a dose of drugs. Um, if you look at say Tibetan artwork, you'll see a bunch of these spiritual beings holding um, the, cut off top of a skull, which has been made into a bowl. And the contents of that bowl is this sort of roiling, bubbling potion, which is called Amrita, which means something like nectar of the gods. Um, you'll often find in Chinese artwork uh, portrayals of spirits holding like potion bottles that they would dispense. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of circumstantial evidence and almost none of it is um, part of a living tradition. So if it did happen, it went extinct a long time ago, but you know, yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to imagine that 
these were just fanciful elements and not connected to something real at one point in the past. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, even, I mean, like the art aside, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about other traditions. I mean, they're, they're the, um, the, the Sami tribe. It was, was it the Sami who had the, the shaman who would, um, drink reindeer urine after they, they consume sure, mushrooms. Sure. Yeah. This is and, the concentration and, method with the Amanita mushrooms. Yeah. Oh, is that okay? It was Amanita. And I mean, like, you know, then you had the, uh, the sea of the Inns who, you know, had their, um, their, their marijuana lodges and, and of course, Soma, whatever that was. I mean, I, I still remember rereading, um, our Oriental heritage and Will Durant is going through the history of India and religion in India and, and talking about the, the poetry of Soma, mm-hmm. whatever Soma happened to be. And, you know, the, the, the mental experience of people who are taking Soma and their minds were expanding to encompass the universe. And it's like, huh? It's like, oh, okay. It's on Arrowhead. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's really interesting. And it's, it's curious to me that that's fallen out of religion. I mean, the, I guess I can't remember who made that distinction between the Apollonian and, and the Dionysian, but it seems like there, would you say that you're endorsing a Dionysian religion in opposition to an Apollonian one? No, um, that would be dualistic and I am a non-dualist. Um, okay. I am endorsing that religion requires Apollonian and Dionysian elements to be complete and that the trend has been sharply towards the Apollonian mode and the Dionysian mode has withered to the detriment of those religions. Why do you think that's happened? I, I think I agree with you. Um, the interaction between church and state is probably the main one. States are ultra Apollonian. Yeah. 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 Okay. So states have gotten stronger. Maybe if, and, and it, it does seem like states are just actively hostile to transcendent experience generally. Like competition. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, I mean, like, you know, I think it's the same way with sex, like states, states just seem really hostile to it and, you know, to varying extents, but people are difficult to control when, when they're having experiences like this. And maybe, right. I don't know, and maybe it's it like a, a religious change. ecstatic experience to lose control. In fact, one of the most likely outcomes of an ecstatic experience is you stop believing things you used to believe. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And it, I mean, it, it also seems like if you have a communal ecstatic experience, you start to develop some amount of loyalty to whoever you're having that ecstatic experience with. Right. I yeah. mean, right. you know, and, and one, one of the, one of the earliest and more intense experiences that Moon and I had was just taking a small amount of, I mean, not, not an illegal substance. I would never admit to having an illegal substance on you know, something that I'm public publicizing, but you know, it was, it was a, a sort of a gray market, like analog of psilocybin. And, you know, it wasn't even a large dose, but it becomes very easy to form. I don't know. Intimacy is not quite the right word for the general case, but I think something like that, like uh, something that, that approaches like a hacked meaning 
through through that kind of experience very quickly. And I, I guess I use the term hacking here. Do you, do you think it's hacking? Um, maybe. What do you mean by hacking? Yeah, I, I guess that's a little bit unclear, right? I, I I mean it both in terms of the sort of in the same way that people who like to try and hack relationships or, or just like find backdoors to experiences that might otherwise be unavailable to them. So, I mean, people talk about by hacking for existence. They're not bisexual, but maybe they would like to be, and maybe that would be an interesting way of being. And so it's not a state that they naturally can attain, but maybe there's some way of, of like engineering that sort of a mindset in themselves. Yeah, okay. Uh, so this, this is a great prompt actually. Um, so hacking has kind of two different operating definitions as far as I know the word. Um, one is pretty close to what you just described um, as kind of motivated shortcuts. And the other definition is from the computer programming community where hacking means something like um, skillful means. Um, those skillful means might include shortcuts. They, they might be expedient, but um, you might also call something really sort of convoluted and difficult a hack too as a term of praise saying like, wow, what a great hack. Like you figured out a solution to a really hard problem. Um, that's why we, yeah, I think I mean something like the superposition of those. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm broadly in favor of both of these things. So I like hacks. I like hacks that are expedient and I like hacks that are, um, skillful and they often go together, which is, you know, two for one bonus sale. I mean, as it applies to the topic we're yeah. talking so, about, um, do the right kind of drugs and the right kind of experiences using those drugs count as a religious or spiritual hack? Um, I say, yeah, yeah, they do. Um, but I endorse it. Um, the use of psychedelics as a aid to spiritual practice is, you know, part of my shtick, I guess. If there's one thing I've been consistently talking about on Twitter for the last four years, it's that. Um, and it's controversial, but I don't really shy away from controversy in this subject. Um, so I'll make a full throated endorsement of using hacks, including drugs for spiritual practice. Definitely. Yeah. So what, so you're suggesting, I think you, I think you advocated kind of a, just a greater balance in religion between, between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. What, how do you think that would be implemented and what do you think it would look like if, if there were just more of that? Cause it, it seems to me that maybe historically it's not like there's been balance at all. And it's, it's been more of a, I don't know, I guess an oscillation or kind of like Apollonianism dominating generally with, with searches of, mm-hmm. I don't know, Dionysian cult like ecstasy. Yeah, the way it usually yeah. works is um, the main body of the church is Arch Apollonian, and then these s- splinter cults show up that want to do something different, um, and they get into the weird shit. They you know they become sex cults or drug cults or whatever, and they're trying to get in touch with yeah. that lost Dionysian mode, but are coming from a culture where they have no training how to do it and inevitably fuck it up. And yeah, yeah. There's this there's this huge theme in Buddhist Tantra, which is sort of about 
mastery or the cultivation of power. <clears throat> and, you know, one of the reasons why Tantra has so much secrecy built into its institutions is because they're trying to kind of control it a little bit. Um, there's, there's, uh, there's a risk and the risk is you might fly off the handle and go on an ego trip. And it's not an uncommon failure, right? You don't have to look very hard to find either a guru who emotionally or physically or financially or sexually abused people who were, you know, subordinating themselves to him. And it's almost always a him. Um, mm -hmm. And you don't have to look yeah. very far to find just individual practitioners who might not have been in positions of power so, so that they could have abused anything, but they abused themselves. They didn't treat themselves very, you know, with, with, the, with the respect and care that was needed. Um, this can lead to psychological harm to an individual. It's not, it's, it's roughly the same thing as an acid casualty. Um, and I think that the fact that there is this sort of congruency between someone who sort of flies off the handle with this unchecked uh, mystical ecstasy is running into almost the same set of problems as someone who flies off the handle with irresponsible psychedelic drug use. And that connection leads me to believe that psychedelic drug use actually is religious ecstasy. At least it can be. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so to finish I think, the, the point, I think this answer your question. Yeah. How, how do you do more ecstatic or Dionysian things? Um, I think you need to create a cultural container for it and, you know, utilizing secrecy and sort of group trust mechanisms to stabilize the cultural container is something that's commonly done. Um, it's not necessarily a good fit for our society. Actually, we live in a modern world that is industrialized and mass scale and everything happens really fast. Um, so those sort of like, control procedures might actually also be kind of obsolete at this point too, but it's not to say we don't need control procedures. We might need new ones. Um, I think that what a really responsible cultural container for ecstatic experiences looks like is it should educate people as to what they're getting into, even though the experience itself might be indescribable. Um, people should at least have the notion that they're kind of swimming in the deep end, that you know, there's some risk. Um, and I think that, yeah, you really need community support. You need integration tools. Community support does not necessarily mean, you know, a church congregation that meets every Sunday. Um, it really might mean like you've got a good therapist that you have a working relationship with, or you've got a really good friend network so that if you had a, if you had a hard time, you can talk to somebody about it and feel safe. Um, and it probably also means that there's a kind of aspect of personal responsibility that is underdeveloped in, a lot of cultures where you're very used to operating in an Apollonian and authoritarian mode, especially with respect to religion. And you expect to be told what to do, but there's nobody who can tell you what to do in a situation like that. You are really fundamentally on your own, or maybe it's just you and God or whatever, you know, metaphysics you want to bring to the table here. Um, it requires confidence. Yeah. You have to know that you're, that you're, that you're okay, that, that, 
you're not like a vile sinner in the eyes of an angry God about to be punished. Like you're really, you're okay. You have a fundamental goodness to you and you really have nothing to be afraid of. That's, that's critical. Yeah. Do you, I'm, I'm a bit curious with this, you know, there, there's this idea of a third mode, which is hermetic. And sure. do, do you think, Maybe. And, and, you know, maybe it's not something that, that can actually be spoken of, but I mean, do, do you think that there's some, I mean, we, you know, you're a non-dualist, so that's fine. Um, are you a Trinitarian in some sense? And, <laughs> and could you make a triangle chart? Can we make a triangle chart? Um, I mean, I love, I love the, well, you know, the Hermes at the, at the top. And whenever I map myself on that chart, I, you know, I say peak Hermes, that's, that's where I want to be. Um, peak Hermes is, by the way, right in the middle. Right, of the we all aspire. Yeah, um, yeah. So, like, what would it mean? Um, let's talk a little bit about the character of Hermes and what we're what we're using his 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 image as a stand-in for. Um, Hermes is a god of magic, which is which is different than a kind of you know temple religion. Um, the name Hermes comes from this object that existed in ancient Greek called a herm. A herm was like a border marker, like a fence post or a pile of stones that would be put at the edge of town. So anyone who was sort of coming in from the wilderness would encounter this ring of herms around the settlement. And they would know then that they were entering civilization and had to conduct themselves differently. Um, So Hermes is sort of like this god of the border and liminal spaces. and this makes a sort of obvious association with magic, since magic is this practice of exploring liminal spaces. Um, it's a bit of a breakaway from, from the sort of temple style of religions. It's not necessarily a group activity. You see a lot of solo practitioners in this space. And it sort of has, has a different orientation, too, where it's not necessarily about, like, transcendent communion with the divine or ecstatic mystical experience, it might be a lot more grounded and pragmatic. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned liminal spaces, like when I'm thinking, when I'm thinking about somebody having a trip, like the experience itself is the experience itself is reads to me as pretty Dionysian. And I wonder, so like, could, would, would you interpret like the hermetic portion as, I don't know, the ritual that, that leads to the come up or the, the come down? I mean, like kind of, kind of like, um, you know, modulating the extent to which you're, yeah, you're I feeling Apollonian and Dionysian at any point in time. Um, so Hermes was a psychopomp, right? Hermes ha- had this task of escorting souls into the underworld. Um, and in the framework of Greek religion, this Eleusinian mystery ritual was a sort of descent into the underworld. Um, yeah. It's, it's not accidental that Hermes is a psychopomp. Um, this, this mode, this sort of navigation of liminal spaces and being concerned with communication and carrying messages um, is meaningful. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a pointer. They, they were trying to teach us about this way of sort of shepherding our souls through an experience like that. And I think that the fact that Hermes is more like 
grounded and pragmatic and like even a little self-involved and tricky um, is, is relevant here that yeah, like in order to deal with these sort of ego dissolving experiences, it really helps to have a guide who has a really solid ego and will bring you back. That's interesting. I mean, like, yeah, you, you could, you could identify this Trinity pretty easily as id, ego, super ego, if, if you were inclined to put things in Freudian terms for some reason. Sure. So that's Dionysus is id <sighs> and Apollo is super ego and Hermes is ego in this one. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of works. Hmm. So do you, would you, yeah, it kind of works. I wonder, I mean, like thinking about the state and all of this, I don't know. I, I think about states or the state, but they, they all seem to blend together a bit as, I mean, being these functionally like superhuman entities, you know, and like superego is almost right. It's, it's, you know, if, if you view them as egregores, it's like a, a process that operates inside of people constantly and uses them as a substrate, but, you know, as an independent process. And I mean, I wonder about the extent to which, I mean, you can, you can view, maybe, maybe you could look at, you know, the Dionysian as kind of just naturally opposed to that sort of tendency for, for some, some process to be running on you all the time and not itself a process, but just a rejection of processes. And maybe the, the ego is like some kind of a balancing of that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely spitballing here and it feels like these are very difficult things to put into words, but right. it maps onto something. Well, it can, if you want it to. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. A very hermetic. I don't know. So, and then, I, I mean, I wonder if there's another aspect of it where sort of, sort of this like Apollonian, I don't know if I want to say imposition because I think there's definitely a value to it. And, but, but maybe it is an imposition anyway. It used to be something that was much more heavily heavily organized by religion than state. I mean, when I think about maybe pre-modern states in particular, they they seem to be much more a function of of like individuals, right? Like these were governments of men. And and superego almost seemed like it was something that that was contained as a matter of conscience and and churches whereas now it's like you know people people owe their fealty much more to a state than to any particular religion i'm gonna keep going back to this i had that conversation with with kersian with um with chris allen where i i was actually sort of dismayed to realize that so somebody commented on twitter that you know if the church excommunicated joe biden who nominally is a catholic like probably half the catholics in the united states would just formally renounce the church which seemed not which, even would just shrug and say whatever. You think so? Maybe. Yeah, you could be right. You could be right. And that's I guess I'm trying to identify why that was horrifying to me. And I think part of it is that it just I feel a certain amount of pain when people treat beliefs so casually or or have such a like wide discrepancy between their stated and, and actual beliefs. Which shouldn't isn't I don't think it should necessarily be upsetting, but for some reason it is, and I'm okay with that. But maybe maybe another aspect of it is just that it really does seem like that means that people are owing their their real allegiance to a state, which 
somehow feels much more totalizing to me than say a medieval mode when people like the church existed and it sort of had temporal power, but that was pretty starkly limited. I mean, it's really hard to directly compare these extremely different societies. Um, and certainly, but let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. It doesn't matter. That's hard. Let's just do it and fuck it up. Um, so I think that the medieval church was actually extraordinarily powerful and they did have temporal power, even in a direct sense where they just owned things, but they, they also yeah. wielded tempor- a lot of temporal power in an indirect sense in that they could at a whim muster an army of, you know, loyal feudal Lords who would bring thousands of soldiers to fight for them. Um, yeah, that was just how feudal society worked though. So, you know, they did have temporal power and amounted to a kind of super state in a way that say the federal government of the U S is a super state over the 50 States. Yeah. But I mean, you know, at the same time, it was also the case that, you, you know, you could, you could have literal emperors who would just shrug it off and say, nah, fuck the Pope, you know, and, yeah. and this happened with some frequency. Sure. And, and, and I don't see anything like that. I don't see any separation of powers, even like even partial separation of powers in, in modern States in the same way. You know, I mean the, the whole idea of fascism say was like, you know, everything inside of the state, nothing apart from the state. And I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not somebody who's going and chanting and calling the United States fascist, for example, but I think there is some kind of a, like, come like, like a centralization of that sort of superego that makes me pretty uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I, I share your discomfort. I'm not sure that it's exactly centralized, um, but you're, you're right to observe that it has pushed out a lot of the competition. So even if it doesn't necessarily have a single like locus of control, because the, you know, at least in the U S the government is sort of a shit show. Um, yeah. It still has like sucked all the oxygen out of the room. There, there's no, there's no ability for, for competing power structures to exist there. And to whatever extent there are competing power structures in our society, they're, they're a bit orthogonal to the state. So you can talk about the power of certain corporations that have a lot of power in their own right, but they only have that insofar as it's not a thing that the state even does. And that when, when a state yeah. step into a space and try to do something, they immediately crowd out any, any other actors in that space. Yeah. I think maybe, maybe specifically what I'm worried about is, is moral authority. Like, actually that's interesting. Who has moral authority in the United States? Like <laughs> you, you might be able to, yeah. Well, I mean, you might be able to go back in time and say like in the fifties, like I think people maybe still listen to their pastors or, you know, you could point to secular figures who, who are seen as having some moral authority, whether, you know, it was like, I think there were, I think there were liberal versions of this or, or, you know, like leftists who, who are seen as having some moral power, whether, you know, like somebody like Nelson Mandela, you know, sometimes the Pope was seen as having moral authority. And I just don't see that anymore. Like it used to be that, and by authority, I mean, 
sort of in the Roman sense where, you know, somebody like this could speak on a moral issue and, you know, Octoritas in Rome was like less than a command and more than a suggestion. Yeah. And people, people would hear this and actually take it into account. And if a moral figure said something like people, at least potentates would have to respond to it. They, they couldn't just ignore it. Even, even if they, you know, ultimately didn't follow through. And I don't, I don't see many moral figures, maybe at all. And that I, I think that's troubling, not because I like authorities, like per se, like I don't want to, you know, go and kiss somebody's boot, but it seems like maybe there are some coordination problems that fall out of this that can be exploited by like other somewhat malicious actors and and maybe authority starts to become like systematized or implicit. Like, I mean, maybe you could point to universities, right? But in a lot of ways, universities have uh, you know, a bunch of features. Uh, so like maybe it's experts. Maybe experts are now authorities in sort of a moral sense. And I don't know that I like that because I know too much about experts, you know? You were a PhD candidate at one point, weren't you? I know I was. I am not to be trusted. <laughs> um, I think it's a really interesting observation. I think that the way I account for the apparent vacuum is to say that even though the United States and its sphere of influence internationally has not completely collapsed. It's experienced a kind of internal cultural balkanization. So within any particular slice of the culture, you can more easily identify your moral authorities. So if you're an evangelical Christian, it's your church. If you're a you know secular humanist tech biz guy living in San Francisco, it's like uh, Google or whatever venture capitalist you're sucking up to. Um, if you're like an ordinary working class American living in Ohio somewhere, like you might not have any, <laughs> and maybe this is part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. What about, I mean, like coming at it from another angle, I'm curious in, so in, in Buddhism, what's the role of saints? Uh, I'll give you a partial answer here. Um, the Buddhist equivalent of a saint is a bodhisattva. Um, bodhisattva means yeah. translation awakened being, um, in cultural usage, it kind of has two different meanings at the same time. Um, one is, um, it refers to a sort of class of spirit who you might even call like angels or something similar. Um, and big caveat there, Buddhism, even though it has like sort of mythopoetic characters in it is at least in a doctrinal level, sort of agnostic or atheistic, um, which is not like, it doesn't say there are no gods or supernatural things. It just says like, we don't think that any of these beings, whatever they are, are like, supreme creators with authority over all, all of the universe. They're, they're just like part of the, the world that we live into. Um, but a Bodhisattva would be like, is, especially is that... prevalent one. Yeah. Okay. And, and like one point of order, um, I was sort of wondering about this earlier. I, I know that there exists Mahayana Buddhism and that seems like it's made. And, and that 
my, my understanding is that's maybe more replete with supernatural figures, but sort of maybe more divorced from like the, the earlier teachings of, of the Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of circling back to the conversation we started with, which we sort of went on a very long tangent to, um, there are, yeah. three, there are three historical movements in Buddhism. Uh, the first one, which is, uh, sort of early Buddhism, sometimes called Hinayana, though they don't call themselves that. Um, that label was something that was applied to them later by the Mahayana movement. Um, and the reason for it is, you know, should be self-evident when you get the translations. Hinayana means lesser vehicle. Mahayana means greater vehicle. So it's sort of vaguely disparaging. They don't call themselves lesser Buddhists. Um, and then the third one the is Mensheviks of Buddhism. Yeah. So, and so these are the three historical ones. Um, and then I'm, I'm going to argue that there is actually a fourth one that has emerged beginning in maybe the mid 20th century as Buddhism entered the West, but it's so new, it hasn't been labeled or named yet. Um, but it is a distinct historical movement in Buddhism that includes mm-hmm. Western Buddhism. Anyway, that's a digression. Um, okay. So the difference between Mahayana and Hinayana. This is all digressions. Yeah. Is, um, is the Bodhisattva path. Um, the result of the Hinayana path is arhatship and cessation and nirvana. The result of the Mahayana path is awakening into existence as a bodhisattva. If you want to go really, really deep into the metaphysics, they'd say a bodhisattva has taken a vow to not attain nirvana until all sentient beings are also awakened. They'll be the last to go, so to speak. So it's a kind of like taking a vow to reincarnate over and over again until the end of time, um, which is kind of a heavy, a heavy thing, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, we we're sort of talking about the, the idea of saints in Buddhism. Um, and I said a bodhisattva is the closest thing that maps to it. Um, the sort of angel version of a bodhisattva is, isn't a good mapping, but there's also this sort of culture hero version of it, which is a good mapping. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you can say that there is this very large and prominent movement within Buddhism, which is Mahayana on the whole, which is oriented towards the production of saints, where the fruit of the path in a Mahayana school would be you become like just the best fucking person, just super chill, totally benevolent, helping everybody everywhere you go. Right. And they call that awakening. So I guess I'm sort of thinking about, I, I'm, I'm really desultory, but there are, you know, 80 things that I want to talk about with this. And I'm just going to own that. There was, there was a movie that I watched in Spanish class in high school, and I can't remember what the name of the movie was, and it almost doesn't matter. But one, there's, there's this proposal in the movie by one of the characters that, and this was in Spain, so make of that what you will. That, that there are three types of, there are three sorts of pillars of the world. And the character specifically names saints, poets, and heroes. And I think that might, do you, do you have any disagree? And, and I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about maybe society is like relying on different types of guys. And, 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 and as you're describing Mahayana as like, being geared toward producing saints in particular that that seems maybe important in some sense although maybe maybe if you're like trying to produce saints maybe 
maybe you're missing the point of saints. Maybe you can't hack sainthood. I don't know. What do you think? I'm, I'm, I'm a bit curious why, like, it seems like that might be something that's good for a religion to do. And it sounds like you're not Mahayana. And so I'm, I guess I'm curious, like whether that's something that you reject about it or, or what? I mean, I'm, I'm none of the traditional Buddhist movements. I'm, I'm an, a non-traditional practitioner. Um, yeah. So I've, I have tried to learn what I can from these various schools and I can certainly identify affinities that I have towards some things more than others. Um, one of the views in Vajrayana is that it's sort of augmentative to the Mahayana path where they don't reject the Bodhisattva ideal, but they have a more sort of holistic view of it so that instead of sort of annihilating your personality and replacing it with a kind of downloaded ego swap of some perfect saint-like being, um, they would rather kind of mm. develop your existing personality into a better version of itself, which just feels like a much more realistic goal to me. I like iteration. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's also an element huh. of style and just pure aesthetics here, which is um, the, the traditional presentation in Mahayana just makes me cringe a lot because it's like lame as fuck. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like good vibes, <laughs> golden boys, no fun. Like, you know, uh, take, take your vows and become a sort of like wandering mendicant saint, very Mother Teresa kind of stuff, um, which is, of course, I'm realizing yeah. that this is not a great example considering, you know, the truth of Mother Teresa's life. But just, just imagine her legend instead of the, the person herself, right? Um, yeah, actually, so this is interesting, too. I, I put it to you. You mentioned humor. I put it to you that humor is strictly hermetic. <laughs> Um, okay, so then, then what's what are the types of pleasure experienced in the Apollonian and Dionysian mode? Um, I think. Oh, that's interesting. Humor is a form of pleasure. Yeah, I think. I, I mean, like the, the the mode of pleasure experienced in Dionysian seems like it's either just straight bodily pleasure or right, like positive positive ecstasy. Yeah, and the Apollonian mode. I don't know. Maybe is, is there pleasure associated with the Apollonian? I, I guess. Think, I think it's winning. Um, I think Apollonian pleasure is victory. Yeah. I mean, like I, I could see like high art as being clearly Apollonian. Like there's a kind of, there's a kind of intricate and orderly art. Yeah. That yeah. I, can I agree with you. I'm going to say that that's also the pleasure of winning because in order to have a high art, you have to have a kind of Apollonian definition of what high art is and then conform to it thereby winning. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. It occurs to me as you're saying this, that I think I have almost a knee jerk reaction against the idea of winning and maybe I <laughs> should, maybe I should just embrace that a bit. Yeah, no, but like, I, I think maybe, maybe it's just like cringe trying to win. Like winning should just be the outcome of doing other things that are good rather than something that, that you hack. 
you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a very hermetic point of view, isn't it? Probably. Yeah. It, it does feel kind of egotistical. Like I'm winning because I'm great, not I'm winning because I'm trying to win. Exactly. Exactly. Or like win- winning as side effect of doing what you wanted to be doing anyway. Yeah. 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 Like deep, that's, that's deeply egotistical. I'm sure okay is. with that. But it's like, it's healthy. It's a healthy. <laughs> yeah. Usually. Like versus, really versus fun. like winning. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like it's like when I think about humor, it seems like that's sort of almost a way of, it's, it's a kind of play and it's making it so that even losing is winning, you know, like if you lose, but it's funny to you, it doesn't really feel like you've lost that much. Yeah. Yeah, totally. What, how do you think this maps onto cars? Actually, wait, let me, let me cut myself off and stop trying to make connections like this. Do you actually, what, do you have any critiques of this sort of a framework of, of, I don't know, existence or, or mental frames? Um, I'm sure I do. Can you be more specific? Yeah. Well, just, just this entire, like, you know, Dionysian hermetic Apollonian view of, of like modes of existing or just, you know, just this entire ontology it, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I, I think it's probably mapping onto something good and correct, but I'm sure there are a lot of failure modes and I'm just curious if you have any off the top of your head. I don't like having ideas and just running with them without giving someone the chance yeah, yeah. to like shoot them down. Well, like, look, the, the most obvious one by a million miles is the map is not the territory. So we, we can play with this all day long, yeah. enjoy our own ramblings about it. But who's to say if it's connected to anything real? We, we in conversation, produce a bunch of what we find to be interesting correlations. But like, what is the thing underneath that really? Um, yeah. As to this particular mapping, like uh, I like it. It appeals to my affinity for Greek mythology. Um, I get a bit of a <laughs> imagining myself in the hermetic mode because it makes me feel like a powerful wizard. That's cool. Um, but like, I don't know. Yeah. Is, is it real? What What is the reality to it? Yeah. Do you do you uh, have you played around with tarot decks a lot? Yeah. What, what have you taken away from that? Um, it's uncanny. I can't explain it. That's what uncanny means, I suppose. Um, yeah, there are certainly, um, wrong ways to use a tarot deck. Like it doesn't give you like pinpoint accurate predictions about things. You don't say, what are my winning lottery numbers or what's going to happen next Wednesday? Tarot deck can't do that. Um, but it can be predictive and it can especially be predictive in the sense of not, not showing you which of the uncertain cloud of probabilities in the future is going to happen. It can be predictive in showing you things that have already happened that you haven't seen. Um, so it's yeah. a sort of like intelligence gathering tool. Um, there's a deep entanglement with the mind of the user. And I think that that, says something interesting about minds. Um, Tarot is useless without interpretation. And I'm sure it's been commented on by others that this is like a symbolically rich alphabet combined with a random number generator. So it's sort of hacking hacking the 
natural human ability to, you know, do aquafenia. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the, the weird thing about it is like, in my experience anyway, um, it, it guides you into these sort of apophenic connections that actually like hit above probability. Like you're, it's not, it's not random actually, which is weird considering it starts with a deck of cards that you shuffle up randomly. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what else to say besides that other than, um, it's this is probably the most popular example of the broader spiritual practice that's sometimes called divination. Um, divination is the reading of signs, and it can be done in a lot of different contexts. Yeah. Okay. I think maybe we're over an hour, which is totally fine. I have gone much longer in the past, but I think this actually maybe goes to a good conclusion for us, which is the following. This has felt like an incredibly post-rationalist podcast. Oh God! Like we, how dare you? <laughs> right? No, I know, but I and I mean that in the best possible way. Okay. But what I'm what I may be curious about, and and what I think tarot highlights well, perhaps, is what what should a rationalist take away from this? You know, I I have this idea of somebody who lives in a rat house who's listening to this and and. And, and just isn't able to like interface with it at all. Sure. And, um, and I, I'm just trying to f- figure out how to translate the importance or the salience or something of what we've been talking about to a framework that would be more graspable for, for some sort of a rationalist audience. Sure. So I guess, and, the- and like, at least with, go ahead at least with tarot, I mean, you mentioned like it has some predictive power mm-hmm. and like maybe the mechanism for that prediction is very heavily entangled with the mind of the person who's using it. Like, and maybe to the extent which they're familiar with, you know, the sigils and archetypes that exist within tarot. Um, I don't know that that seems like maybe a starting point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the elephant in the room here, if I was speaking to a rationalist would be, the, the metaphysics that they might be operating under that I'm assuming they are, which is, um, physicalism, right? Um, yeah. I don't think anything we've talked about here requires belief in a sort of dualistic conception of the world, which is separated into substances of spirit and matter. Um, I certainly don't believe that. I already said I'm a non-dualist. So, do I think that there are sort of transcendent qualities of sufficiently complex arrangements of matter? I mean, like I could, I could use those words, but it's a cop out. Cause what the fuck does that even mean? Um, yeah, I, I want to say that the, the bridge that brought me over from a physicalist worldview into where I'm at now, wh- whatever that is, is the psychedelic experience period. Um, With a full understanding that this is something that is deeply entangled with my own mind and that this is not necessarily representative of, you know, uh, extraterrestrial contact or spiritual possession, or we can, we can render all of those 
descriptions as poetry and say that the use of poetry is to be evocative, to efficiently transfer symbols from the mind of one person into the mind of another person. And that it's actually the stuff that's happening in the mind that's really relevant there. Um, I guess the biggest yeah. piece that I want to push back against the physicalist view is the conflation of brain and mind. And that's sort of my starting point, where if I'm talking to a person who says, um, the mind is just what the brain does, then it's really hard to keep having a conversation with them. I don't, I don't really know how to push past that besides me just sort of saying, um, take two tabs and call me in the morning, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but, but at some point, you do get a breakthrough experience. And these sort of ecstatic spiritual experiences are very powerful and can cause rapid movement towards that direction. And it's a sort of loosening of the constrictors that you have around uh, possible ways of interpreting the world and especially your mind, the inner phenomenology. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, cool. Well, um, is there anything else you want to cover? I, I definitely like to just give people platforms to go off on whatever they like. So. Um, I mean, this is a lot of fun. I'm sure we could find other things to talk about, but uh, this seems like a pretty good length. Um, the last word I want to say is sort of plugging the Evolving Ground community. Um, if any of you are interested in training in meditation, um, please hit me up on Twitter and I can put you in contact with some resources there. I do want to say with a huge caveat, um, I am an apprentice in Evolving Ground, but I am not the organizer or facilitator and nothing I say about it is authoritative. Uh, it has a generally decentralized and non-authoritarian structure to it. We don't have a guru. We just have facilitators, right? Um, and it's non-traditional and a bit degenerate intentionally in a good way. Um, and we are trying to train in um, styles of meditation that originate from Vajrayana Buddhism, but that we are trying to recontextualize to uh, work better for people in contemporary America, basically. That's the long and the short of it. Cool. Well, hey, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. Um, thanks especially for being flexible with scheduling. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a blast talking with you. And I think I've learned a lot. <laughs> Me too. I need to think about that too. But <laughs> all right, cool. Take care, man. Take care.